principles for marriage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except it perhaps for agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of, one of a, one a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead a life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called to the Lord as a bondservant is a freedom, freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when is called is bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as those who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. 
but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure undevoted devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for holding my breath as I read your word this morning. Um, I thank you, Lord, for this glorious day that you have given us. Thank you that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ um, before you. I thank you that you have purchased us as your people. Thank you that when you look at us, you see us holy, um, precious, and beautiful in your sight, God. I ask, Holy Spirit, if there's any sin in our heart, that your blood um, may wash us clean. I pray that we may come before you boldly, confessing our sins before you, Jesus. I pray that as Tommy preaches your word, Father God, your spirit may um, just analyze our hearts and that we may be open to your correction and to your leading of repentance. I thank you, Lord, that we don't come before you as children that are condemned, but we are know that we already been forgiven by the cross and your resurrection power. So I ask Holy Spirit that you may just help us to understand your word this morning and to see you rightly, Jesus, and to know you and to walk with you um, more closely. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Mercy House. It's a lot of Bible this morning, huh? We're going to be dismissing all the children out the back. So uh, grade schoolers, my beautiful wife is waving her hands in the air. You're going to go toward that crazy, beautiful woman over there. So, All right. All right, I've never, uh, I've never preached on 40 verses before. So uh, Alden preached the entire book of Job in his uh, James 4 sermon. And that's, that's 42 chapters, so I think we're going to be able to get through this. Um, there's something that's to be said about the speed and the scale at which you read through Scripture. And the majority of us are probably familiar with close reading. Um, so that is taking the time to go kind of verse by verse, sentence by sentence, and, and carefully expositing and, and gathering the meaning from the Word of God. This is like the majority of the teaching diet at Mercy House. Uh, we typically preach verse by verse, and in some cases even word by word. Uh, and the reason for this is twofold. So one, we regard Scripture incredibly highly. So, so we treasure it, and, and like a delicious meal, like we want to take our time to, to savor and enjoy it. But two, because it's also really the safest way to study Scripture. So even for myself, as I'm going on about 12 years of preaching, I, I, I want to cling very close to the Word um, and, and see what the Word says instead of just kind of sharing what I think about it, which is going to be more fruitful for everybody who's involved. But it's not to say that a broader approach to Scripture can't be fruitful as well. 
After all, Corinth would have received this letter from Paul, and they would have gathered together as a church, very similar to what just happened here, and the entire letter would have been read out for everybody all at once. When I was traveling overseas a, a few years ago, my wife, Caitlin, did something super sweet. What she did was she wrote me letters ahead of time, one for each day, and she hid them inside of my luggage, and so I got to open one each day, and, and they were filled with encouragements and love and affection and, and affirmations, and I didn't open these like, and just read the middle paragraph of those letters. I, I didn't open up one and just like read a sentence a day during my trip. I, I read those in their entirety. I, I wanted to understand the context of what she was writing in and, and really savored each of them as a whole letter each day. And so that's kind of the approach we're going to take this morning. And it's going to be really helpful for you to have it out in front of you. So we're not going to do slides today. We've placed Bibles under our chairs for the first time in like two years. So we encourage you, if you have a Bible app, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't, there should be a Bible right under your seat or in the seat in front of you. What we're going to do is we're going to do a light jog together through all of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to take some pauses here and there. We're going to look at some things a little bit closer. But I just don't want you to be alarmed if it feels like we're going fast through these verses. Like this is an intentional change of pace and we're still going to arrive at the foot of the cross at the end. So before we get going, uh, let me set up chapter 7 a little bit for us. So this section comes on the heels of, of chapter 6, where Paul is strongly exhorting the Corinthians to, to flee from sexual immorality. That's what we talked about last week. So if you remember from last week, Paul exposes the broken worldview uh, uh, that, that, that the Corinthians had uh, in regards to sex and sexuality. And being in a culture that was incredibly licentious, which just means they're incredibly sexually promiscuous, uh, some of the recent converts, people who were coming to Christ in the church, were literally like stumbling out of their debaucherous lifestyle that ate up Corinth. And so suffice it to say, the transformation from an unbeliever to a follower of Christ is incredibly messy for a lot of the members of the church. And we're seeing a lot of this in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. If you take nothing else away from chapter 6, what you need to know is kind of like the, the, the recap, episode recap to understand today are these two things. The first thing is that sexual sin is incredibly dangerous and incredibly damaging. So what Paul talks about is that sex is not just like eating food. You're, you're not just consuming it. It's not just like a physical thing. It involves our hearts. It involves our, our, our minds. It even involves our souls. And the other thing about that is that when we do uh, sexual sin, or when we engage in sexual sin, it leads to a disintegration of ourselves. It, it leads to a disintegration uh, of our relationship with other people as we engage with them in our sexual sin, and then ultimately it, it leads to a disintegration in our relationship with God. So that's one major point that we need to know moving into this next chapter. The other one is that being a Christian means that you are different. So Paul says that, that you've been washed You've been sanctified, you've been justified, so you're no longer your older self. When you become a Christian, you are a new person. And so, yes, this is a, a process that happens, but the imperative to live differently, it rests upon the indicative of who we are in Christ. So it's a struggle, it's going to be a struggle to mature as a believer, but we should never treat sin or the challenges of sin in our lives as minor we must never stop striving to live as we actually are by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are kind of like the two major pillars that we're going to pull over from chapter 6. What we need to remember is just like any community of people, there's going to be a range of personalities and subcultures within the church. 
So while Paul just spent a lot of time wrestling with the hearts of those who are living in sexual sin, who are really struggling in, in their well-worn paths of their past, there are others who didn't struggle in this way. Like they heard the original exhortations that Paul gave, and this is hardly the first time that Paul is correcting the Corinthians and challenging them to, to not live in their former selves of licentiousness. They heard it and they heeded it. They listened and, and, and they heard it. They actually took off like 100 miles an hour uh, with it. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so Paul is quoting the Corinthians here, and apparently one of the things that the Corinthians wrote to Paul was that it was good for a man to not have any sexual relations with a woman. And so some of the Corinthians have taken to abstinence as a response to Paul's exhortations. So let's just kind of back up here. So well, what's happening in Corinth is that you have a group of people who are struggling in sexual sin and others who have taken Paul's exhortation to flee from sexual immorality so strongly that they view all sex as bad. And so they abstain from it completely, even within the context of marriage, which is what God has designed it to be used in. When our girls were younger, we, we wanted to help them have a healthy fear and respect of sharp objects, among other things. This is a part of parenting. And so we tell them to be very careful with scissors, that scissors aren't toys, that, that they don't run around with them, that, that they are a tool. And if you use them the wrong way, you can really hurt yourself and hurt other people. But it's not as if we wanted them to be terrified of scissors. Like our goal was not to have them abstain from using scissors for the rest of their entire lives. But we wanted to teach them to understand that there's a time and a place to use scissors, that we need to be careful with them so we don't hurt ourselves and hurt other people. And see, the Corinthians' response to abstinence was not what Paul had intended. It's not what God intends for us. So Mercy House, hear the strong warnings against sexual immorality in the latter portion of chapter 6, but don't be afraid of sex or intimacy. You see, in 2 Timothy, Paul is talking to him. He's saying, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God heals. He, he redeems and he restores. And even if you've experienced broken sexuality, even as you, you heard the sermon last week and, and you are feeling like the weight of sexual sin in your life, your conclusion should not be that, that like you're disqualified from experience wholeness, the wholeness of God's design for sexuality and for sex. So, so there's hope in that. And remember that as we move forward. In verses two through five, here, as we're looking at it, Paul is he's gently correcting the Corinthians. He, he's making a case for sex. He, he's painting this beautiful picture of sex as God designed it to be experienced in a monogamous covenant relationship of marriage between one husband and one wife. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He talks about how sex is not necessarily like a, a right that a husband lays claim for himself. It's not a right that a wife lays claim for herself. It's actually a responsibility that each wife and husband has for one another. You see this in verses three, uh, verse 3 there. It says the husband should not give, I'm sorry, the husband should give to his wife her, her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And so in a healthy Christian marriage, Sex is not something that's demanded. It's something that is graciously offered by both husband and wife to one another. Now, Paul goes on to further expl explain how a Christian ought to view their bodies 
in the context of marriage. So remember, many people in Corinth have, have the wrong idea of sex and about their bodies, which is what chapter 6 is really all about. And earlier in chapter 6, Paul is reminding them that their bodies are eternal. They're not just a beat-up junker. One day it's going to be thrown away and they're going to get something new, but their bodies are actually eternal. So he's reminding them that, that their bodies are holy bodies, that they house the Spirit of God. And so in the same way, as believers are not, to, to, um, to not our own, but, but we are God's, husbands and wives experience this reality with one another. So they're kind of playing out this larger cosmic reality. And this is a theme that we're going to be tracing through as we read this chapter. In chapter 4, it says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And that's kind of like scary if you stop there, right? But this is likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, so it's a level playing field there where God is showing them this mutual submission and love for one another. It's a mutual, humble submission, one that's rooted in love and trust of one another. And it's another way that marriage displays the gospel. And Paul goes on here uh, about sex and even talks about the spiritual benefits and the fruit of sexual intercourse in marriage. And the warning we see is not uh, having sex as a married couple can actually open the door, ironically, for sexual immorality. So this is the opposite of what the Corinthians thought. They're like, well, we shouldn't have sex because it's going to lead to sexual immorality. Here Paul's saying, well, if you don't have sex, that might lead to sexual immorality. Look at verse 5. It says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The implication of verse 5 is that there is a regularity of intimacy and sex in marriage. And, and Paul's basically saying, don't not have sex. <laughs> sex is not something that you demand, but it's also not something that you use to, to deprive one another of. Uh, but he does lay out an instance where it is appropriate to not have sex, and that's to take time to pray. One of the things that this communicates is that the primary purpose of marriage is not to have sex. It might be what a lot of people look forward to the most, but there's something greater that's going on in marriage, and, and it involves the glory of God and, and the building of his kingdom and the bringing of heaven down here to earth. And so the biblical mission of marriage is not to carve out some little comfortable slice of life and to like pamper ourselves with little luxuries and little vacations until we die together as a family. The goal is not to be able to grow old and sit there holding hands and matching rockers as we like watch the sunset. Like what a pitiful, boring view of marriage. That's what the world is feeding us. But Christian marriage is a means to display and to bring the gospel to a broken and a lost world. It's a way to tangibly and practically demonstrate God's extravagant and selfless love to the person that you're married to. It's a way to experience God's sustaining power as we rely on him day after day to pour ourselves out and to die to ourselves for the good of our spouse. It's also a way to multiply God's kingdom, a way to raise and, and, and disciple many Christians who are going to go out as lights into a dark world and bring tangible goodness and radical gospel change to the ends of the earth. If we're trying to do marriage the way that God designed Christian marriage to be done, that takes more than just sex. It takes prayer, which is what Paul's getting at here. As married couples, when, when we pause to pray, 
It helps us remember that what we're trying to do is much bigger than what we think. And it's something that we need God's supernatural help with in order to accomplish. God, help us as married people to, to catch this vision for marriage and for our families. To not be satisfied with like a baseline of ease and comfort. And I know, like a lot of us as married, like we're struggling to keep our heads above water. I understand that. I'm, I'm in that with you. But I pray that we would have this desire, this transformation in our hearts to want to pour ourselves out more fully, our, our entire families out for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom. That's what I want out of my marriage and out of my family. And I, I hope that's what you would want too. Between the end of chapter 6 and the opening here in chapter 7, Paul is basically saying, make sure you get this right. The sexual immorality, sexual sin is horribly damaging and it should be fled from at all costs. But sex within marriage is good. It's wholesome. It provides spiritual benefits. It's protective of the marriages when it's done within the design and the safety of a covenant relationship of marriage. And so while Paul shifts from talking about unhealthy sex in chapter 6 to here we're seeing him talk about healthy sex in the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7 as a whole is not a sex chapter, so you don't have to worry. We're not going to talk about this for, for this whole time. It's, it's actually a chapter about marriage. And sex is hardly the most challenging or even the most important aspect of marriage, as evidenced by the fact that it only takes up about five verses in these 40 verses. That's one-eighth. I did the math in a calculator. One of the ongoing themes, which I mentioned earlier, is that when you become a Christian, when you decide to follow Jesus, like something happens inside you. We change. We are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. So we're no longer who we were. But to use Paul's words in Colossians in chapter 3, we, we have died to that old self, and we have been united with Christ in new life. But here's the challenge that every single new believer is going to face. You might change... But your life situation and your circumstances do not. For instance, if someone in this room is not a believer but becomes a believer today, which I hope and pray that that happens, that would be great, that person is going to wake up tomorrow with the same job. And, and sure, there are like eternal realities that might rebalance the priorities in the new believer's life, but their responsibilities are largely going to remain the same. If they're a student now, they're going to be a student in the morning. If, if they're a part of a dysfunctional family now, they're going to wake up in one tomorrow. And what Paul is addressing here is that if, if you're married or if you're engaged or, or if you're single today and you become a Christian, you will most likely be married, engaged, or single when you wake up tomorrow. And so the new believer will wrestle with how to navigate the circumstances and situations of life that they, that they are now in as a Christian. So how these new eternal realities impact their circumstances and their situations in life. And this is what Paul is shepherding and pastoring the Corinthians through. It really is a practical working out of faith and life. And so that's partly why this chapter is so long. He's kind of going through all the different challenges of what that looks like. So in these verses, Paul addresses sex, he talks about divorce. He talks about marriage with unbelievers. He talks about being engaged. That's what being betrothed means. And he talks about singleness. And so we're going to trace the narrative of these verses together. We're going to jump over verses 6 through 9 for a minute. We're going to circle back to that. But look at verse uh, 10. 
In verses 10 through 16, Paul addresses how a Christian ought to approach divorce. Verse 10 says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul doesn't dive into much nuance here. This is not a text that really explains divorce. These two verses communicate that for the Christian, divorce is simply not an option. It might be in Corinth where they live. It might be in our world today that says that it's fine, and even in some cases, it's encouraged as a viable option. But for the Christian, this is just not the case. I understand that this is a really big can of worms, and we don't have the time to really dig into divorce, but, but here's why Christians should not consider divorce with their spouse as an option. Because God never considers divorce with us as an option. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, this is from last week, that we as Christians are members of Christ. And later in verse 17, that we've been joined together in one spirit with God. And Paul is explaining in, in those verses that marriage on this human level is a shadow of a far greater reality of intimacy between us and God in Christ. And the greater reality is that God has covenanted with us, like a marriage relationship, and God does not break covenants. He takes the phrase, for better or for worse, into eternity. So even if we falter in our faith, even when we fail to love him, even when we commit spiritual adultery with God and give ourselves and our hearts over to worshiping idols, like God will keep his covenant with us. If we are in Christ, God will never divorce us. And so nothing can separate us from his love. When we put our faith in him, we are bound with God. We are his and he is ours. And divorce is not an option for God because it would diminish his glory. It communicates that he's not patient enough, that he's not able to endure, that he's not able to reconcile or redeem. He's not good enough. He's not merciful enough. He's not gracious enough. The idea of divorce, it goes against the nature of who God is. And so it's not an option for God. And so if it's not an option for God, and if marriage points to our relationship with God, that means that divorce ought not be an option for us. So that's the biblical basis for why Christians should not consider divorce. And that being said, there's a lot of nuance here. This is complicated, and I understand that. I understand that it's more complicated than I even understand, okay? Like, I'm a young guy. What I know as I read this and what we're trying to acknowledge is that this is just what Paul is saying and that God will work out those situations with each and every person. And some texts that, that are far better addressing some of the nuances, which are in particular looking at cases of abuse and sexual sin within a marriage, those texts are going to be Matthew 5, verse 32, in Matthew 19, verse 9. And so those are just bookmark those. If you're curious and interested, that's where I would go. And I know for some of us, this is a very tender spot. Maybe this is a hard spot, and I want, I'm acknowledging that, and I want to invite you to have more conversation about it. If you have questions or just want to talk and dialogue more about it, please reach out to me. In verses 12 through 16, Paul touches on how to navigate marriage when you're a follower of Christ but your spouse is not. This is another practical shepherding point 
where some Corinthians became a believer and their spouse did not. So what do you do? And Paul's shepherding here is very consistent. He says, don't get divorced. And the reasoning behind this is twofold. So first, the believer can be a blessing to both the unbelieving spouse and the children. So Paul uses the language in verse 14. Uh, he says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now this is not referring to like residual salvation. We know that salvation is by grace through faith. You see that in Ephesians 2? It comes through confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. That's Romans 10, 9. Not through the confession of your spouse or the belief of your parents. So that's not what Paul means here. But what he does mean is that holiness, the holiness of a believer can transform the unbeliever. This is a pretty radical idea. What we see in the Old Testament is that unclean things defile holy things. That, that's how uh, the, the, the transfer works. And that's why unclean and unholy things, things that are defiled, need to be removed far away from everything else as you read uh, the, the, the Old Testament and you read the Levitical law. Unholy things need to be removed far away lest they contaminate the community. But what we see here is that the power of Christ's holiness in us brings about a force that is so powerful that it supersedes what is unholy. So instead of the unbelieving spouse defiling or detracting from the holiness of a believing spouse, it's actually the opposite picture. You see this in like John 1, where John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. That is the power of God's washing us. That's the power of him sanctifying and justifying us. And the hope from all this is also the second reason why a believer ought not divorce, I'm sorry, a believer ought not divorce an unbeliever. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so God can use the believer to bring a spouse and conceivably their children to saving faith in Jesus. And what an incredibly powerful and hopeful text that just speaks to the heart and the power of God. And so to be clear, it's not set in stone that it's inevitable, but the point is that it's a possibility. And that possibility makes it worth staying in the marriage out of love and concern for your unbelieving spouse and for your children. We're going to keep moving on here. There's a lot to get through. As we move through, to, uh, through chapter 7, you see in verses 17 through 27, it has Paul taking a step back a little bit. And this section seems a little bit strange. It may seem like it's a random side note, uh, but it actually addresses the heart of this passage. Paul begins this section in verse 17 by saying, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This verse speaks to the challenge new believers face that we just talked about a little bit earlier. The practical questions that come with, what do I do on Monday morning when I become a believer on Sunday? And Paul's exhortation is simply to continue living the life that the Lord has assigned to you, to which God has called you to. Now, this does not mean continuing living in sinful ways of your former self. Like, that's not consistent with the gospel that Paul is preaching. But what Paul is speaking to here 
is, is the morally neutral station of life that you find yourself in and which God has called you to. So if you were like a barista on Friday and you become a Christian today, then you should return as a barista tomorrow. If you were a student on Friday, you should go to class tomorrow. If you owned a home on Friday, you should make your mortgage payment on Monday. Like your trajectory of life on a practical level, unless it involves blatant sinfulness, should remain intact by default. Now, God can change that. He can call you to different things. But this is a general rule of thumb that Paul gives to all of his churches, to lead the life that God has called you to. I think what happens, and I see this a lot, is is when a person first becomes a believer, there's like this excitement and this zeal and this like initial burst of transformative energy. And it's awesome. And it's largely very genuine. And it's God-given. And it's like a joy that's being experienced by the new believer as they have their life like radically transformed by the gospel. And not every new believer has this experience, but, but some are just like absolutely pumped. And I've spoken to plenty of students who are new or young believers who say, I think God's calling me to quit school. I'm going to go be a missionary. And I've literally had people tell me, a person tell me, like, I think I'm just going to quit my job. I think I'm just going to, like, walk around and, like, tell people about Jesus. Which, look, like, I'm not saying God doesn't call people to steer their careers in radically different directions. Paul himself was literally knocked off of a horse, <laughs> and he was, his entire life trajectory changed. So that was his conversion story. So it does happen. But my point is that Paul is encouraging new and young believers to remain in their trajectory of life, to trust that God has actually called them to that. Like, God's sovereignty over your life did not begin when you first became a believer. He's been orchestrating and directing and leading you toward his loving, and his loving sovereignty has, has assigned a station of life for you, leading up to the moment of salvation and then onward through as well. And so the examples Paul uses are circumcision and being a bondservant or a slave. We don't have time to dive really far into this, but at the very least, there are practical and social reasons that you'd want to be circumcised and practical and social reasons why you would not want to be circumcised now that you're a believer in first century Palestine. And there are reasons why you'd want to be free from your servitude if, if you're an indentured servant or, or, or a slave. But Paul basically says that circumcision really doesn't mean anything. And he also says to not be concerned with, those are his words, whether you're a bondservant or if you're free. And he goes on to talk about, well, if, if you're a slave circumstantially, well, just know that you're, you're freed in Christ. And if you're free circumstantially, just know that you are serving Christ as a master. So he closes this section in verse 24 by saying, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so the general rule of thumb is to stay as you are. Your circumstances and your situation, where you're at in life, is significantly less important than who you are with now that you're a believer. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to remain in their station and their condition, and and most importantly, at the end of verse 24 there, to stay with God in whatever God has called you to do. This section, Paul does kind of take a step back, and he discusses things that aren't marriage, 
And like I said, it feels like a bit of a rabbit trail he's going down, but this idea of remaining content where you are and seeing that God has a specific calling and purpose for our lives and how that plays situationally and circumstantially and even spiritually, it gets at the heart of one of the biggest questions in Corinth. And that question is, if marriage requires all of these nuances and if marriage presents all these challenges that we need to now navigate, like thinking about like sex and, and, and big visioning and, and interpersonal conflict and the complexities upon complexities upon complexities, like should we even get married, Paul? That's what they're asking. Like it seems as though it's a pretty big hassle. And this is a legitimate question that Corinth had and that each single person here today, sitting here today, ought to be asking, which is should I, as a Christian, get married? And the answer is not as simple as it might seem. One of the most important things that you learn as a preacher or a teacher of God's word is is to find the main idea, to find the single thread that traces through all of these verses, which are going to pull up all of those rabbit trails and meanderings back to the original heart behind God's words. And so as you take the time to study chapter 7, and there's a lot there, what you'll find is that the main thread that runs through the entire verses is actually two threads that are woven together, and that is of marriage and celibacy, or singleness. What you see about marriage in these verses is that it's a precious gift, that it's worth doing, it's worth fighting for, it's worth laboring in, And that devotion and faithfulness to a spouse brings about the spiritual benefits for you, but it also displays the gospel for the world. On the other hand, what you see about singleness in these verses is that it's also a very precious gift. That it's worth praising and celebrating just as much, if not more, than marriage is. And that it communicates the gospel to the world by displaying a tangible dependence and an undivided devotion to Christ. Reading through chapter 7 just one time should leave people a little bit confused. Like, is Paul pro-marriage or is he pro-singleness? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Like, Paul communicates that both marriage and singleness are precious gifts from God in very different ways. And so we've looked at marriage, but let's look through some of what Paul has to say about celibacy and singleness. And, and here's what's really interesting. Like he weaves it throughout the entire chapter. It's not limited to a single section. It's talked about through the entire chapter. Right after Paul's uh, uh, initial correction early on in chapter 7 of what healthy sex looks like in a healthy marriage, Paul says this in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul is a single man. He's single. And there's speculation that he may have been married, that he, he may be a widower, or maybe his wife left him when he became a Christian and went crazy. Not in a bad way. Like he went like crazy in a worldly way, right? But regardless, Paul is not currently married. So when he says, I wish that all were as my sorry, I wish that all were as I myself am. What he's saying is that I wish everyone was single like me. And so after he talks about the wholeness and goodness of sex and marriage, he weaves in here, but I wish you were all single like me. <laughs> and look at the second, verse, uh, in verse, or second sentence in verse 7 there. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And this is where we're presented with quite a radical idea. 
that marriage is a gift from God and that those who have it are experiencing a blessing from the Lord, while at the same time, singleness is a gift from God as well. And even though Paul would prefer that everyone was single, he understands that God blesses different people with different callings and different gifts. I think the church can sometimes tend to over-glorify marriage. Or at the very least, that, that Christian marriage is kind of like the first place prize for faithful Christians. And like the consolation prize uh, by default is like the default status of singleness. And that's just not true. That's not Paul's view of singleness, and it's not God's view of singleness. These verses uh, that that we're going through lay out just this beautiful picture of this gift of singleness that that includes like a lot of dignity and and glory and even benefits that trump the gift of marriage. So not only can we sometimes make the mistake of seeing singleness as as kind of secondary, I think we're tempted to think of singleness or celibacy as some sort of like supernatural gifting or calling. After studying this chapter, I'm not convinced that the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy is any more unique or supernatural than the gift of marriage. Paul doesn't appear to treat it like a spiritual gift. And here's my point and the case that I'm going to try to make before you this morning. I don't think that the single person, if you're single, like I'm speaking to you, I don't think that the single person needs to discern incredibly deeply or take a spiritual gifts questionnaire to determine whether or not they have the gift of singleness. I think if you're single right now, you've got the gift. You're, like, that's literally what it is. Like, hey, you're living the gift right now. If you're married, you've got the gift of marriage right now. So I want to challenge us to not over-spiritualize like, this gift of singleness. Now, I know some of you are thinking, what, 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 that, like, does this mean that no one should ever get married? Like, are we starting some sort of weird Christian cult and like this day one and Mercy House is going off the rails? Of course not. <laughs> Paul is communicating his preference but he's not issuing a command. He, he's built up this beautiful picture of marriage and sex in this chapter, and he's clearly acknowledging that marriage is a gift just like singleness, and that some are blessed with one and some are blessed with the other. And so the next question is like, all right, then who should get married? Let's look at these next verses. Look, look at verses 8 through 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But... If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul reiterates again that unmarried people and widows, who I'll kind of lump together as those who are single, it is good for them to remain single as Paul is single. So this is really interesting because Paul is shifting from preference. So earlier he's saying that he wishes everyone was single like him, and he actually assigns a moral quantifier. He says singleness is not just something that he prefers. It's not just a nice treat or a gift. But Paul is saying in verse 8 that it's actually good for those who are single to be single. Again, not as a consolation prize, not as a binary default, Being single is actually good for you. It's good for you. But it's not good for everyone. That's what Paul's saying. And this is the question that we're posing. So if marriage is good and singleness is good, then how do you determine who ought to get married and who shouldn't? 
And Paul only gives us one verse to determine the answer to this very important question, and that's in verse 9. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it, it, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So I want to start with what this verse is not saying. <laughs> what this is not saying is that if we have sinful, lustful desires and we can't control our flesh, then we ought to get married. Or that that means that we're immediately qualified because we have these feelings for the gift of marriage. I've heard this verse used by a lot of people who struggle with lust and with pornography to say, clearly, I just need to get married. Like, this is like the burning passion. And first off, and I'm, like, I want to be serious here, marriage and sex do not automatically heal sexual sin. Nor does marriage or sex satiate an uncontrollable sinful lust. That's not how it works. So if that's your struggle, I'd say that the last thing you should be thinking about is marriage. And so this is kind of a, a side trail, but what it does is it loops back to the sermon on chapter 6 last week. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, like, listen to that. And Paul's use of passion in this verse is not a reference to sinful lust, but of healthy sexual desire. The word for self-control that he uses brings to mind this idea of discipline and, 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 and the training of like an athlete. So one indicator that you might be called to leave the gift of singleness for the gift of marriage is if you have sexual desire, if you feel attraction and physical longing for the opposite sex. And sexual desire is not evil or sinful or bad. I want to say that from the front. It's part of God's beautiful design, like being attracted and drawn toward people of the opposite sex, feeling like the fluttering in your heart and, and the excitement. It doesn't mean that you're sinning. It means that you're experiencing something that God has designed. And it's not for everyone, mind you, but it is something that is normal, something that is natural. And, and Paul is saying if you feel those feelings for the opposite sex and, and, and you don't have the discipline to be able to control those feelings, which is implying that some people do have the ability to discipline themselves in those feelings, then go ahead and get married. But listen to me, if you are single, and even if you have, the, uh, even if you experience attraction and sexual desire, uh, but you can keep that under control, then consider remaining single. Consider remaining single. The, the other misunderstanding about celibacy or singleness is that it's only for people who don't have any sexual desire, which is not what Paul is saying here. So if you are burning with good, wholesome passion and attraction, should you be on the prowl for a spouse then? Should you start looking for that spouse? Is that, if that's where your heart is, look at verses 27 through 28. Paul says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a, from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. It's important to note that as we talk about marriage and singleness, we're not talking about deciding between uh, something that is morally good and something that is morally bad. Paul is making his case for singleness, saying that it's a gift that's good for you, and, and he wants it for you, but if you marry, then you're not sinning. But the second half of verse 27 
right there, is going to be really hard for single people. And Paul says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, this is stitched with the thread that weaves through verses 17 through 24, right before this, which we just talked about, that we ought to remain in whatever condition and situation of life that we're, that we're in before we became a believer. That there isn't like a scrambling to change our life trajectory. There isn't a grasping for something that we don't have. And Paul's exhortation is, is for contentment in whatever situation or circumstance that we find ourselves in. And, and for the Christian, what this means is if you're a Christian and you're in a hard marriage with, with an unbeliever, or maybe just that marriage is incredibly draining as, as an experience, like remain faithfully in that marriage with God. And for the Christian who is single and who may be experiencing like sadness and, and loneliness, Remain faithfully single with God. I know there's sadness and singleness. I experienced that as well. But sadness and singleness is not a qualifier for marriage. That's not why you should get married. It's just, just because you are lonely. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we shouldn't date? Should we not pursue other people to marry? It's honestly hard to kind of dance around Paul's exhortation to not seek a wife in verse 38. Like, you can't turn to the Greek to soften his language here. We can't look at historical context and try to, like, morph it into something that's a little bit easier to swallow. Paul's clearly saying, if you are single, don't seek marriage. Here's how I make sense of this. We know that marriage is good. And it's not something to avoid. So it doesn't mean that we ought to run away from marriage. It, Paul is constantly trying to help the Corinthians understand that their eternal reality and, 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 and how their eternal reality actually trickles down to inform their physical reality here and now. And a huge part of a Christian's eternal reality is that we are united with Christ. So like a husband is united with his wife, that points to the surpassing, incredible intimacy that we have and the closeness of relationship that we have with Christ. And out of that, Paul exhorts Christians to be wholly devoted to God, like a wife or a husband is devoted to one another. In his letter to the Colossians, and I'm just going to read this to you. This is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so what I would say is that if you are single, enjoy the gift of singleness. It might be for a season, it might be indefinite, but it is good for you. Don't seek marriage or a spouse. Those are things of this world. And Paul talks about the trivial challenges that, that you'll have if you get married that you're going to have to worry about. Those are going to occupy parts of your brain that you wouldn't have to deal with if you weren't married. It might come to pass that as you are seeking God in wholehearted devotion, as you pursue God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, like you might look over and you might see a beautiful person doing the same exact thing. And you might feel some passion for them. And you might not be able to be so disciplined in those feelings and just cut them off as they are. And that's a beautiful, good thing to do. 
And should you pursue them? Should you marry them? Well, you're not sinning. You've traded the awesome gift of singleness for the awesome gift of marriage. If you're single, I, I just want to encourage you. I, I, we, like as marrieds, we get a lot of encouragement from the pulpit. So I just want to take this opportunity to love on you if you are single. Your singleness is not a curse. Your singleness is not a curse. It's not the result of you being undesirable. Your singleness does not mean that you are ugly or that you are unlovable or that you're uncool. And your singleness, whether it's for a season or for the rest of your life, is a gift from God that is good for you. It's good for you. And while I know personally and intimately that it can feel isolating and lonely in that place, do not let Satan steal your joy in this season of your life. The reality is that you have a God who's absolutely crazy about you. You have fellowship and intimacy available to you with God that's more joyful and more rich than any married person on this entire planet. And so dig into that as a single person. Let God love you. Don't spend your days longing for a shadow when the real thing is right in front of you. So Mercy House, if you're single, let me just leave you with this. Verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Translation, marriage is good. Singleness is better. Like, I am tempted in a weird, godly way to be envious of your gift of singleness as it affords you more whole and complete devotion to Christ. Singles, you literally have the better portion. You literally have the better portion. So praise God, and my portion as a married man is pretty awesome too. So, like, we're all winning here today. I know we've done a lot of jumping around. So please, this week, take time to read through chapter 7 for yourselves. I hope that this was helpful and encouraging to you. Let's read verses 29 and 31, and we're going to land this plane. 29 to 31. Paul says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and for those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. At the end of the day, life on earth is short. It's a blink of an eye. It's a vapor when it's compared to the vast eternity that we get to spend with Christ. So both marriage and singleness are great gifts from God. And so, God, may you help us like, appreciate and, and enjoy these for the gifts that they are. And God blesses us in other ways, too. Like, we have the gift of this beautiful space to meet in. We have the gift of, of food and clean water and the clothes that are on our backs, a, a gifts of friendship and family that are all around us. But these temporary blessings are not where we find our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction. For that, we look to the cross. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Marriage and singleness are awesome gifts. They're awesome. But the greatest gift that God gives us is himself. 
And communion reminds us of the selfless sacrifice of the one who loves our entire being of who we are. The one who laid down his life in pursuit of us, who continues to chase us patiently and extravagantly holding us fast for better or for worse in sickness and in health for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, you are a good gift giver. There is no one better at giving gifts than you. There's no one better than designing and creating gifts than you. You are incredibly creative and extravagant and just incredible in how you take care of us and bless us with things beyond just our basic needs. God, I pray that we would be able to have a clear biblical understanding, the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness here as a community. God, we confess that both are hard. As a married person, God, I confess that there are challenges and nuances and uh, intricacies and complexities of marriage that uh, in, in my fleshy worst moments, I wish I didn't have to deal with. But God, I thank you that in those moments, I get to turn to you and see wholeness of, 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 of a marriage relationship as you designed it and sustained and transformed by you. And God, we confess that singleness is hard. God, we confess that we're lonely and we want a partner. We want someone to be with. And so, God, I pray for those who are single in our church, those who are listening online, God, that you would allow them to experience fellowship with you with such depth and richness that can only be experienced as a single person. Lord, in whatever circumstance we're in, whatever situation of life we're in, help us to be content, God. Help us to be with you in it, God. Whether we're married or single, whether we own a house or we rent, whether we're a student or we have a career, whatever that is, help us, Lord, to be content and to trust you and your calling on our lives, Lord. Help us to surrender our lives wholly to you and help us appreciate you above all else, God. Thank you for giving yourself to us. We're thankful. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.